0: Hello fellow foodies, this is Dr. Cassandra Quave, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today we're gonna be talking about one of my favorite foods, it is sweet, it's dark, it is delicious. And if you haven't guessed it already, um, I'm talking about chocolate. <laughs> and so our guest today is Dr. Nat Blutter. Um, Nat and I were both students in the same era of getting trained in ethnobotany, so we go way back. And he's done some really fantastic things, um, transitioning from his research into actually having a business around chocolate. He is the co-founder and flavormeister of Madre Chocolate, He has 22 years of experience in botany, documenting exotic fruits and vegetables, gathering food in the wild. Um, He also does a lot of work with herbs and traditional medicine, and has explored Asia, South America, Central America, and Africa. His PhD is in ethnobotany from the City University of New York and New York Botanical Garden, where he researched the medicinal plants of Peru, Mali, and the Guatemalan Maya people. Um, He's done a lot of work on ethnobotany, taste-modifying plants, and stimulant plants, including cacao, which has spurred him to start a traditional ingredient, high-antioxidant, artisanal chocolate company that he's called Madre Chocolate. Um, So thanks so much for coming on the show, Nat. It's great to see you.
1: Sure. My pleasure. Great to see you, Cassie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So why don't we just begin with a discussion around the culture of chocolate? What can you share with us about the history of chocolate and its role that it's played in different cultures?
1: Yeah, that's what really got me interested in chocolate because, as you mentioned, my PhD was more on medicinal plants. And I kind of got distracted for a few years from my main thesis uh, when my Uh, Mayan uh, archaeologist classmate, uh, Cameron McNeil, asked me to write a book chapter in this book, uh, Chocolate in Mesoamerica. She wanted me to work on the South American component, uh, where cacao is native to and where it was originally discovered all the uses for. Um, And so I went down this three-year path with my advisor, Doug Daly, at the New York Botanical Garden who uh, works mainly in Brazil, and he loves cacao and all of its relatives, so we had kind of fun researching why why uh, people really latched on to cacao for all its great, um, you know, the well-known stimulant qualities, but there's also other uh, psychoactive compounds in there that we, that we discovered uh, people had documented uh, finding in, in the cacao bean mostly, or seed, as it's mm-hmm. really, not really a bean. <laughs> 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 That's
0: great. And so from from a perspective of the origins of cacao, um, is this primarily, did it originate primarily in Central America and then kind of spread from there? I know we have this component where it left the New World and went um, to Europe and became really popular
1: So, uh, at the time we wrote the book, uh, it was thought that, um, well, it was definitely known that cacao is native to the Northern Amazon, like, uh, Ecuador, Peru, uh, through Northern Brazil and Venezuela. Um, and at the time we thought that originally uh, in pre-Columbian times that the South Americans were only using the fruit of cacao uh, and then it was moved up into Central America for the use of the fruit, which has a, uh, if not many people have tasted that unless you've been to a tropical country, because it doesn't really preserve well and you don't see it in grocery stores in um, temperate areas. But the fruit of cacao is a very, um, it tastes nothing like chocolate, I tell people, but it's really delicious on its own right. It has a, uh, a very similar taste to, like, mangosteen or lychee or guanabana, soursop. Mm-hmm. And if people aren't familiar with any of those tropical fruit, I say the closest approximation is watermelon Jolly Ranchers, which is actually incredibly <laughs> accurate.
0: Uh, I love watermelon Jolly Ranchers. <laughs>
1: yeah. you know, I don't know if they, they really designed it after watermelon or if they, <laughs> they actually tasted a cacao and are just trying to give a more familiar fruit to other people. So... Um, so it, it was thought that, uh, cacao was, uh, used to make, uh, kind of wine and beer, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: from the fruit because it ferments extremely easily. And we think that's how they discovered the fermentation stage of, of, cacao and chocolate. And then, uh, it wasn't until it was moved up into Central America that we thought people figured out how to use a seed, but then, um, just about Two or three years ago, there was a new archaeological find in uh, northern Ecuador from the Moche people from about 5,500 years ago where they found evidence of the seed being used. So Mm -hmm. every year, there's a new discovery moving it further south and further back in time. So now we know that the predecessors to the Inca were actually the first people to make chocolate from the seed. So that Um. threw my whole thesis that I wrote up in this book out of whack. (laughs) Because <laughs> uh, I was thinking that, that, um, that cacao filled the cultural niche of being a stimulant, which uh, people in Central America didn't really have an easy-to-use one. So I kind of mapped out all the, all the stimulant plants throughout the Americas. So whether that was coca with cocaine in it or um, mate and guayusa with caffeine... Um, or there's, some effigene containing plants in more northern parts of Mexico. Um, and some, some plants in the Marista Casey, the nutmeg family, uh, kind of, uh, around Panama area that had, that had some stimulant properties. Um, and all, and, uh, and of course Guaraná that has caffeine in it too, that's really common in Brazil, um. So, and all of these other plants are much easier to use than than cacao to get the stimulant effect. Like, um, you know, coca leaf, you just stick it in your mouth, maybe with some um, calcium carbonate, and you get a pretty instant stimulant property. Um, with guaraná, you just grate the seed into into water with a handy dried piranha tongue, which we all have in our back pocket.
0: <laughs> of course.
1: Where's yours? <laughs> <laughs> I actually
0: uh, do have piranha teeth in my jewelry box
1: so <laughs> yeah, yeah. like you said everyone has one of those <laughs> um, so all these were super easy to use so why would anyone bother with the complicated process of, of processing cacao because you have to crack it open to pull out all the seeds r- ferment them for about a week to make it uh, really palatable and then mm. dry it and then grind it uh, and put it in water to finally make a drink out of it. So it's, it's a minimum of like a two-week process to, from the fruit to, the, to, the, to a drinkable form of chocolate. And then if you want to make a bar, it's more like a two-month process to get a chocolate bar. So my theory yeah. is why would people bother if they had all these easy-to-use stimulants lying around with, with going through that long process of chocolate? Uh, and it was only in the Yucatan that I found no other record of uh, endemic uh, or native stimulant plants that were that were simple to use
0: hmm. that's a really it's a really interesting concept. I mean, and you think about stimulant plants across the globe, I mean, our entire global economies have been built and shifted based on the search for these stimulants, whether it's tea or coffee, chocolate. Mm. Mm-hmm. you know, these Ilex species. Yeah, it's, it is a, it's an amazing, um, it's amazing how humans have sought this out. <laughs> and, um, while we're on the topic of like stimulants, what can you share with us about the chemistry of cacao? Like, what is it about, about that plant that we just really, that we really like?
1: So the, The best known is definitely, of all the psychoactive compounds in cacao, are the stimulants. So there's uh, a little bit of caffeine. People think chocolate has a lot more caffeine than it actually does. I think you need about uh, three to five standard dark chocolate bars to even come close to a cup of coffee in terms of caffeine, but it does have another uh methyl xanthine alkaloid uh called theobromine in it which is what i have on my necklace made by this great big island uh um molecular jewelry person molecular muse Fun. Um, so uh theobromine is um it's less well known it's only in cacao and i believe mate um and and a little bit in tea, but cacao is definitely the plant with the highest levels of theobromine. And it's a little bit more of a heart stimulant than a brain stimulant, as caffeine is. Um, So it definitely affects you differently. Um, So we make this uh, cacao shell tea out of the papery shell of the cacao bean, uh, which is where a lot of the theobromine and caffeine goes during the fermentation process. And I always warn people that even if you have like 10 cups of espresso before bed and have no trouble sleeping, you're probably only acclimated to the caffeine and not the theobromine. Mm. So you got to be careful with it. Um, unless you eat a half pound of chocolate every day like me. And then, <laughs> and then I'm the opposite. I can have as much theobromine as possible, but I can't have even like a drop of tea after 5 p.m. or I can't sleep. Um, <laughs> So, and then those two are actually synergistic. Uh, they've found so the the two of them being together in chocolate is is will will definitely make it a stimulant. Um, and at, at first, people thought that um, researchers thought that people didn't really respond to theobromine that much. But the initial studies was only done on about like 20 people or so, which is really way too small and to get any good results. Um, and But they did find a few people in that study could not only detect, they made these like fake chocolate bars, some with theobromine and some without. They found that a few people in the study could detect not only the presence or absence of theob- theobromine, but like how much there was. They had different mm-hmm. levels. So then they redid the study on people who were um, those sensitive people, which I always said, you have to do it on chocophiles, which is mm-hmm. our, we, we don't like to say uh, chocoholics. So we feel like that's a dirty word um, mm-hmm. since chocolate is so good for you. So when they redid the study on, on chocophiles, people who really love chocolate, they found that they could really tell uh, when there was theobromine in it, in it or not, and get some stimulant effects from it. So, so that's the stimulant parts. And then there's about um, twelve other compounds that are psychoactive in chocolate, from mm. um, dopamine analogs or sorry, dopamine precursors, uh, serotonin analogs. There's um, phenylethylamine in the same category as the street drug ecstasy or MDMA um there's uh three cannabinoids uh s- similar to what's found in marijuana there's um uh beta carboline alkaloids like in ayahuasca um and there's a few MAO uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors in there too so these are all in like minute minute quantities right mm-hmm. You can you can eat a chocolate bar and start tripping or anything. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, the MAOIs have like antidepressant activity too, but that can yeah, and high high levels can be dangerous if combined with other medicines. But you're not going to have that problem with chocolate. No, so, no,
1: no. Yeah, these yeah. are all yeah micrograms per per gram quantities, but you got to think in combination. Those thirteen psychoactive compounds are really going to have some effect. Um, yeah. So for for years, people were saying we love chocolate just because it's it's sweet and it has fat in it, which are two things that humans crave. But I think the 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 thought on that has has changed a lot. That it's it's all these psychoactive compounds that really get people uh, almost hooked on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel better after eating some chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the one of the. Um, the fascinating things you mentioned earlier, processing of chocolate. And I'm, I would bet that many of our listeners have never seen what it looks like inside of a a, a cacao pod. And I know that you happen to live in paradise in uh, Hawaii and you have a, a cacao tree. And do you have a pod nearby that you could open and kind of walk us through what it looks like inside and how, how you take that material and make chocolate from it?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I would take you outside to harvest it right off the tree behind me. Um, I don't know if people on the video can see there's a cacao pod ripening right outside the window, but mm-hmm. I harvested one earlier, just like a cooking show, because um, I started a ferment uh, of, of cacao last night. Um, so this is the pod. They come in um, red, orange, yellow, sometimes white, and... Um, they're, uh, usually about a pound in weight and they can be from, uh, I'd say like, um, eight to 12 inches long. And, uh, when you crack it open with your handy machete here,
0: (laughs) you just got laying around. That's great.
1: (laughs) Just outside the door for all my cacao and coconut cracking needs. And you kind of want to, what it's usually done is to save your fingers. You kind of whack it about a, a third of the way down from the stem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you crack it open. Um, wow. Insides, there's this um, beautiful white pulp. Um, it, it looks a bit alien if you've never seen them before. Um, and there's about 40 seeds in there. Uh, and so this makes about one chocolate bar. Um, and that white pulp around the seed is the stuff that tastes uh, like the watermelon Jolly Ranchers. Um, and they're all uh, attached to a placenta there that we have to pull them off of and, uh, to start the ferment. We just want the seeds. And the sugar in the seeds fuels the ferment that's consumed by yeast to turn that into alcohol and then some acetic acid and lactic acid bacteria come in in the later days of the ferment, and they consume the alcohol and convert that to lactic acid and acetic acid bacteria.
0: That's cool. So within those seeds, so they're covered in this white, kind of the white pulp. Mm -hmm. What color are the seeds after you, do you remove the pulp when you make the chocolate, when you start the ferment, or you just throw it all in together?
1: No, we throw it in, and it kind of melts off during Mm the process of the ferment. You get this... Uh, amazing uh, liquid dripping out the bottom called miel de cacao or honey of the cacao and mm. I just did a farm tour yesterday where we had a, a fresh ferment going and we um, drank the miel de cacao it's it's pretty amazing it's like that um, it's like ambrosia and uh, <sighs> this that was actually there was a company that was selling it uh, on in the mainland US called Repurpose Pod for a while and like um, in like uh, soda bottles, kind of, so mm-hmm. you you could drink the meal de cacao. I don't know if they're still doing it. They might only like uh, send it to smoothie shops. So if you want to try the the um, the the um, the juice of the cacao, you might have to go to Brazil where it's still very common. Um, but I'm gonna try to cut open one of these seeds. And not slice my finger open because mm-hmm. uh, cacao is actually in the same family as okra, so it's very mm-hmm. mucilaginous and slippery. So, nice. um, this looks like the uh, probably the Trinitario variety of cacao, which should have purple seeds, I would guess. Um, but there are some varieties like Criollo that has a more. Um, a more white seed that's kind of uh the um the, the the diamond of cacao varieties if a lot of people have seen the Anthony Bourdain episode where he goes into the Peruvian Amazon in search of this rare uh national variety of cacao and that mm. um that is a white seeded ancestor of the criollo which is uh, a Mayan heirloom variety uh, that basically means bread in Spanish because they bred a lot of the bitterness out. So this one, uh, I don't know if you can see, is, is purple inside. So, yeah, definitely a Trinitario variety. And we call, that, we call that color Pantone 238 Unfermented Cacao Bean Purple. So that's kind of our theme color. We 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 have everything at Madre is uh, purple colored because of that.
0: <laughs> it's a beautiful, rich, royal purple. So
1: yeah.
0: so we've done a couple of shows on fermentation. I'm I'm I love I love fermenting things, but like a lot of my experience has been around you know lactic acid fermentation in brine. Mm. But you're not adding a brine when you when you when you ferment the chocolate, right? So how? Mm-hmm how what is what does the fermentation vessel look like? Does it have to be an anaerobic environment, or is it just like an open bowl or are there? like can you walk us through what the mm-hmm. fermentation how that works?
1: Yeah, it's um I've talked to you know uh, Rachel Dutton, who's a a fermentation researcher. I've talked to her about it, and she says that cacao is the most complicated food ferment. <laughs> in the world. Um, wow. It, it blows away wine, which only has like one species of, of yeast in the ferment, or even like a blue cheese that has, you know, a, a bacteria, a lactic acid bacteria, and, and a fungus. Um, so, cacao has three entire categories of, of microbes that do the fermentation. So, there's the yeast, there's the lactic acid bacteria, and there's the acetic acid bacteria. And even within that, there's about five to ten species in each wow. of those categories. So it's an entire ecosystem. And as compared to wine or or like a sourdough or a brine ferment, it's um, it's it's very uncontrolled. So it's definitely kind of done in the wild, uh, usually in a in a wood box uh, lined with banana leaves um, mm. that give it some insulation, but also kind of inoculate it with the the microbes from the environment that have settled on the banana leaves. And we also try to get um, natural local inoculants by um, putting the empty pod halves into the ferment. Um, so you're getting stuff off the surface of the pod too. Because um, we, we definitely want to inoculate it uh, to get it going in the right direction. I like to think of it as a probiotic, like mm-hmm. if you didn't inoculate it properly. It might go the right way, but in Hawaii, especially where I say we live in the North Pole of cacao, so it's one of the coldest places in the world where cacao grows, um, the ferment can be a little difficult to, to get it to go to the proper temperatures. Um, so we definitely want to inoculate it properly. Um, So the, and I try to use local stuff like you could, you know, get, uh, live yogurt cultures at the store or like, uh, ale or wine yeast to get it started, but then it would taste like those and really want the terroir Mm -hmm. of the farm where we grow the cacao. Uh, so I try to get the local inoculants as much as possible. And sometimes I'll go as far as to make a, a vinegar mother out of either the cacao fruit drippings from the previous ferment or other local fruits. So we can get the local acetic acid bacteria strain so it can really have the Hawaiian flavor or wherever we're working, Dominican. Uh, we've taught this in Vanuatu and Solomon Islands and uh, to some Thai and Filipino cacao growers. And we really emphasize trying to capture the local flavor of the cacao. Um, Great. So to further answer your question, during the first couple days of the ferment, it is just the yeast that are in there, and they are anaerobic. So, so that kind of happens naturally. We don't have to, like, enclose it necessarily, but just by all the fruit uh, kind of glomming together and the, and the juices coming off, it, it, it is naturally anaerobic. And they turn the sugars in the fruit into alcohol. And then around day uh, two or three, the lactic acid bacteria take over and they sort of transition from anaerobic to aerobic uh, while they're converting the alcohol to um, lactic acid bacteria. And they're, they're responsible for starting to get the temperature up uh, a little bit, and then finally the acetic acid bacteria, which are probably the most important for the flavor, come in and around day three, four, five, and they really bump up the temperature. We wanna reach about 120 Fahrenheit um, for a good ferment to, to really pull the bitterness out of the bean. Um, and so they- So are you, are you heating
0: this, or this is just the temperature from the fermentations making this heat?
1: So uh, where cacao is native to and most of the places in the world where it grows, within um, 20-degree latitude north and south is kind of the natural Mm -hmm. growing of cacao. Uh, If you're doing a large enough amount, usually like a meter cube uh, fermentation box, um, you don't need to heat it. But Mm -hmm. in Hawaii, where we're in the North Pole of cacao... (laughs) We often do because uh, we have a couple other factors that are making it difficult for the fermentation there's um, you know a lot of really small or just backyard farmers so they only have you know 10 20 pods at a time mm-hmm. um, and so you don't really reach critical mass it's kind of like a compost bin you know where yeah. if it's too small it won't really heat up on its own so <clears throat> the same is true um, here with a lot of these backyard growers. So I collect cacao from all these different farmers and I ferment them together to get that critical mass, but I do it in a mesh bag so I can give it back, give them back only their cacao and, and not have it mixed with the other ones. Oh,
0: um, nice.
1: And so here we've got, you've, you've heard of Hawaii Five-O, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Uh, We coined a mnemonic we call Hawaii Five-I instead for remembering the ways that you need to get a good fermentation. So we do um, idling, uh, inoculation, insulation, incubation, and increased volume. So idling, we let the pods sit around uh, in the sun for maybe a week, and that dries them out and makes it more aerobic, which helps the acetic acid bacteria boost the temperatures. Um, inoculation we make sure we're getting all the good microbes in there to start uh, insulation we put it in like a cooler or a chest freezer to to keep it warm um, and incubation we actually have a incandescent light bulb in there heating it to about 100 degrees um, so we kind of trick the beans into thinking they're still in the amazon <laughs> not in the nice. cold, cold north of hawaii Um, And then increased volume is getting that critical mass to make sure it goes well. So in Hawaii, yes, we do heat it often, especially if we're doing small amounts. But in its uh, more natural setting, you shouldn't need to heat it.
0: That's great. So this takes about two weeks, you said, to do the The, fermentation step.
1: The fermentation is generally about five to seven days in the Amazon. In Hawaii, we extend it to about ten days, seven to ten days, um, and then, uh, there's another, usually about, uh, weeks to 10 days of, uh, drying and the fermentation kind of continues a little bit into through the first few days of drying. And, um, I mean, the main point of fermentation, I really feel like it's the most important part of the entire chocolate making process that most people have never heard of. Um, because it always happens on the farm. It has to be done within a week of, of So uh it's almost always, you know, fermented right on the farm in the tropics, and then the fermented dried beans are sent to US or Europe or uh temperate areas to be turned into chocolate. And the chocolate maker is trying to take credit for the taste of the chocolate, where it's really the cacao farmer who's doing the ferment. Um but I don't, I don't know if you can get a reaction shot of me eating this <coughs> unfermented cacao bean, but it's it's um it's really super bitter, like medicinally bitter. It doesn't taste anything like chocolate. I'm very averse to bitter things. I think that's why I focus so strongly on doing a good ferment, but and I've tried to make chocolate out of unfermented cacao and it is terrible. Oh. Would <laughs> not want to eat it. Um, it definitely has a lot of the more of the antioxidants because they haven't been mm-hmm. fermented out, hasn't been heated, but I don't think many people would really want to eat it much. Yeah. With, um, so the main purpose is to pull out those bitter compounds and um, develop a lot of nice um, fruity flavors, floral aromas. Um, you get a little of umami added from the yeast fermentation. Um, So it's a really complex process, and uh, if you have a well-fermented cacao bean, it's really easy to make great chocolate. Uh, Most of the cacao in the world, which is commodity cacao, um, grown in in like Malaysia or West Africa, um, is not super well-fermented. You know, only a short ferment of a few days, um, merely to remove the pulp, and it's so bitter... And that's why most of the commodity chocolate, they have to pump it full of sugar and milk to sort Mm of cover up those bitter flavors. But uh, people are amazed when you have a well fermented cacao, even at like 70 or 80%, it tastes amazingly sweet and delicious and it doesn't need all those added things.
0: That's really amazing. So I didn't realize that. I've been to a European chocolate factory before and just was completely repulsed by the unsweetened chocolate you know, liquid because it was so intensely better. Yeah. Um, but again, they're not fermenting it themselves. They're sourcing it from other places where it's already fermented and packed up, dried and, and shipped. Yeah. Um, so that's so really interesting. So in Hawaii, you're able to, with your company, you make your own chocolate. So post-ferment, what is it like to make your own handcrafted artisanal chocolate? Like, is it, I just have no idea, like how does that work? How does that even work? How do you go from these beans to like a chocolate bar?
1: So after the, <clears throat> the two to three week process of fermentation and drying, um, then that's usually when we get the beans and then we age them for a minimum of six weeks. Um, and that um, when they first come off the dryer, they still have a, a lot of the acetic acid in them. Uh, which is nice because it's kind of a sign of a of a well fermented cacao, um, but uh, it can be too strong and and sort of overwhelm all the other subtle flavors of the chocolate. It um, tastes
0: vin- like, kind of like vinegar flavor. Basically, is what
1: yeah, tastes it tastes like. Yeah, yeah. you add the sugar and often vanilla in the in the chocolate making process. That that vinegar flavor turns into a fruity flavor. But it can be so intense that that's like it only tastes like you know tart cherries or raspberries or something, and you don't get the other subtleties. And it's it's been a trend in like American craft chocolate to have much fruitier uh, tasting chocolate. But uh, it's um, a lot of first time chocolate makers when the, when they're first starting out. It's like oh, this is a totally new flavor in chocolate, but it's kind of monotone. So I consider uh, the vinegar kind of like the chocolate maker's palette. They can leave it in if it's there and they like it. Uh, they can, re- if they don't like that vinegar, they can reduce it by roasting and aging and uh, conching process, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, so it's good to have it in the bean because if you want it and it's not there, you can't just like pour vinegar into the chocolate mm-hmm. uh, binder. Um, so we, we try to select beans that have at least some vinegar in them, but then we're aging them to mellow that out and let all the other, uh, amazing, uh, chocolatey, nutty, uh, floral aromas come through more. Wow. Um, the, um, we age for a minimum of six weeks, but, uh, we've done some as long as three years, um, when, when we felt it was just a little too strong or potent uh, even after the six weeks. Um, and then it's ready for the main chocolate making process where we roast the beans, um, both in order to develop the flavor, but also to kind of puff up the shells of the beans mm-hmm. so we can take off that papery skin. It's kind of like a peanut, you know, uh, paper skin. Um, and that papery skin, uh, gets a lot of the theobromine and caffeine during the fermentation process. It moves from the, from the seed into the shell. Um, and so we want to take that off and we save that for making tea. It's not good to eat straight, but, uh, it's good for tea. Um, and then the inside of the bean, which when it's crushed is called a nib, uh, if you've seen cacao nibs in your local mm-hmm. grocery store. Um, a, a nib can be either roasted or raw. It's usually, it's usually uh, roasted uh, just to be able to get the shell off. Um, and so we, we do that in a machine called a winnower, uh, kind of like people winnow, um, winnow uh, rice or wheat, in a basket um the the papery shell is a lot lighter so we use a vacuum to to pull off the shell and just leave us with the nib um and then those nibs go into a a a stone grinder or conch um they're called that because they were um initially when when joseph lint the name you might have heard of associated with i've heard
0: of i've heard of lint chocolate yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah, he uh, came up with, uh, and other folks came up with a, the conching process. It was a, a conical-shaped grinder, kind of like a conch shell. Um, and he's also, Lint is also responsible for uh, inventing the modern chocolate bar. So all the traditional preparations of chocolate that I mentioned were um, were just drinks. Like, no one was really mm-hmm. making the bar. They kind of formed the chocolate into a... A kind of patty in order to transport it but they wouldn't eat that straight they would always um you know mel- uh melt it into water to make a drink so uh this was you know transferred to europe and people were, had chocolate houses all over uh just like we have cafes everywhere um but they were all having chocolate drinks um they were grinding in these in these giant stone grinders. And Lint accidentally left one running over the weekend when he went away, came back, he thought the chocolate would be ruined, and he realized it was this amazing, silky, Mm. smooth, creamy uh, stuff that when it solidified, you could eat directly um, without having to make it into a drink. So that was, uh, I think, in the 1850s, the invention of the chocolate bar in Switzerland. And then... If that all doesn't sound complicated, we have to do the the next step, which is the hardest part of chocolate making, the tempering. Um, So this is making the chocolate nice and shiny. Uh, It's all about the visuals, so it it doesn't Mm -hmm. really affect the taste a whole lot. Um, So if you've ever gotten a chocolate bar at the store and it had this kind of like white matte finish to it, um, that is chocolate bloom and it's not bad, at all it's it's really just um it's just the cocoa butter in the cacao coming to the surface Mm -hmm. and it, it just happens from temperature fluctuations if the bar has gone above about um 90 degrees for for any amount of time it will bloom like that so I tell people you should tell all your friends that it's ruined and they shouldn't eat it, and then you get to eat it all.
0: It's <laughs> um, a great tip, a good foodie tip, thanks that. Yeah. <laughs> Give me all yeah. those bloomed chocolate bars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, you
1: can you can you can you can keep your kids away from the bloomed chocolate bar and tell them oh, that's <laughs> terrible. That's only for mom. <laughs> um, so the tempering um, I call it the dark art of chocolate making and it's really it's really where the kind of the alchemy comes in. Um, so you can't do it the tempering if it's above 50% humidity, which hmm. is all the time in Hawaii, right? And this yeah. is why <clears throat> chocolate bars haven't been been made where cacao grows because they're just not compatible environments. Cacao loves uh, super humid, rainy Climates it needs at least 60 inches of rain a year to, to grow well, whereas the tempering process is the, totally opposite. You need really low humidity. Like um, even where you are in Atlanta, it would be tough in the summer to to. Yeah, temper. It um, gets a
0: little bit a little bit humid here. <laughs> right.
1: So the tempering it's a it's a lot like you know making <clears throat> tempered glass or annealing metal um, steel. You gotta um, heat the the chocolate, the melted chocolate, to about 120 degrees. That kind of erases all the different crystals. There's five cocoa butter crystal forms, and we only want one of them, the beta five crystal. So we're getting rid of all of them by melting it to 120. Then we cool it down to 80 or so, which which forms all of the crystals, including the, the matte finish ones that we don't like. And then the last step, we um, melt it to about... Uh, we, we heat it to about 88 to 91 degrees Fahrenheit, and that melts out all the bad ones and only leaves behind the beta 5 crystals that we want that have that nice shine. Um, and that narrow three-degree window, uh, you have to pour it into the molds and then cool it. So you kind of lock in that, that good crystal structure. Um, and that temperature range can vary a lot depending on where the cacao is grown um, and the variety and a few other factors. So every time we get a, we work with a new farm, we kind of have to re-figure out the whole, the whole um, tempering process. Um, and we do this all, of course, in like a climate-controlled, dehumidified, air-conditioned kitchen so that it will it will work most of the time. And wow. it's definitely the hardest part. Like, even though I've been doing it for um, 15 years now, we, we we mess it up, you know, like 10% of the time. So. When
0: you're, what happens when you're adding in other ingredients? So I'm thinking, you know, if you make different percent, chocolates that have different amounts of sugar or dairy Mm. or even other plants like I know you have a chocolate that um I think you actually shared I don't know if this was a bar that you made or you just loved another bar at some point but I remember you giving me some chocolate with chili peppers in it and I was blown away Sounds it's probably one that you made yeah and um so does that also influence the tempering process whenever you add in these other ingredients
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, I forgot. I I left out part of the uh that process. So um in the conch in the grinder, we are adding the sugar. Um that's that's all you really need to make a, a chocolate bar. Um we do add a little extra cocoa butter that's extracted mm-hmm. from another batch of beans, um, because it helps uh make the grinding process a little easier and it also helps with the tempering process. Um, so the, the cacao bean that I showed you is, uh, you can think of it as about half cocoa butter and half cocoa powder. Um, mm-hmm. That varies depending on your uh, distance from the equator. So in Hawaii, uh, despite all the problems of fermentation, uh, since it's so cold, we have uh, more cocoa butter in the bean. It's about 60% cocoa butter here. So we have the advantage that the chocolate that you make from the local cacao is naturally creamier and less bitter because of the higher cocoa butter content. But we still add a little bit more just to make the tempering a a bit easier. And we also add vanilla in that process. Not everyone does, but since we're kind of named after the motherland of chocolate, um, oh, it's appropriate that we're doing the interview right after Mother's Day, (laughs) Um, so madre means mother in Spanish, and so we are inspired by motherland in Latin America of chocolate, so we do a lot of these inclusions, like, uh, vanilla, which is, uh, native to Mexico, and they've been adding to their chocolate for hundreds of years, um, and, uh, we add things like chili peppers that you tasted, and other ingredients like that, um, uh, if we don't want them to be completely smoothed out, if we want a little crunch or, or chew, we'll add them during the tempering process right before we pour it. But they have to be completely completely dried out. So like if we're adding any fruit like we add a, we have a passion fruit chocolate um, and like a hibiscus chocolate, those have to be totally dehydrated. otherwise they'll, they'll mess up the, um, the tempering. And even even adding nuts, like uh, we have a orchata uh, uh, chocolate bar with um, uh, with almonds in it, that even the the almond oil from the nuts can mess with the tempering. So if you get a nut uh, embedded chocolate bar, you might see kind of rings of bloom around the nuts, and that's from the nut oil kind of bleeding out into the chocolate bar. So wow. That-
0: <laughs> Is this so much more complex than I realize. I mean, it's 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 legitimately a lot of a lot of food chemistry that goes yeah, into this.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Definitely.
0: And so, what's your favorite form of chocolate? Uh, do you like it as a bar, or do you like to go super traditional, kind of the you know as as these fermented beverages?
1: Um, I love them all. Like uh, when this. When it got a little colder this winter, we had one of the coldest winters I've ever experienced in Hawaii, being here for 12 years. Um, it dipped down to the to the high 50s. And that might not sound that cold to you guys on the mainland, but you have to remember that uh, these walls here behind me, there's no insulation in them, so it's the same temperature inside as outside the house. So it was 59 degrees in the house as well. Um so we're drinking a lot of hot chocolate. So yeah, I like to make, um, drinks with, the um, with the chilies in them. And there's this amazing, uh, flower from Chiapas and Oaxaca called Rosita de Cacao. Um, it's in the same, um, family as cacao, but, but quite distantly related. It looks more like a little mini white hibiscus flower. Um, and that, I, have, I haven't never figured out why it's named Rosita de Cacao, which means rose of the cacao. I think maybe the Mayan and Zapotec were so astute that they they knew that it was in the same family as cacao, um, even way back in the day. And even its name in Nahuatl in the Aztec language, Xital, um, means flower of the cacao. Um, and I call that the, the gold dress of spices because everyone who smells it gets something different from it. Um, I don't remember if I ever brought that to you at a SCB conference, but, uh, some people think it smells like curry powder. Some people say fenugreek. Some people say maple syrup. I've even heard people say like citrus. So, um, wow. That is used traditionally uh, in a Oaxacan drink called Tejate, which combines um, the cacao, the rosita, the seed of mame sapote, which has a bunch of cyanide in it. Uh, But if you detoxify it properly, it has this amazing uh, almond extract smell. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it has a cacao relative uh, called pataste or jaguar cacao. Um, which is uh, theobroma bicolor, um, mm-hmm. and it has totally white seeds. Um, so some people call it the original white chocolate, uh, and it tastes kind of more like marzipan. And in Mayan mythology, the, um, the cacao is considered the, the, the female, and the jaguar cacao is considered the, the male uh, cause they have very different um, looking pods. I won't go into the what what bot organs they think they look like. Uh, <laughs> but in, in tahate, you kind of mix the two together. So you're getting this yin and yang of the male and female. Um, so we tried to recreate that bar. We have a jaguar cacao bar where we we swirled the 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 white jaguar chocolate with the dark, regular, cacao chocolate to sort of recreate this yin and yang uh effect um so we released that for valentine's day and some special occasions for that That
0: sounds Uh, amazing
1: and then so yeah i have and then i'll have like nibs on my fruit salad for breakfast so i have it in that form and then usually later in the day i'll eat one of our our chocolate bars this is our most popular one the coconut ginger it's kind of like a, a milk chocolate but with coconut milk Mm-hmm. Um, or just a, a few bars of straight dark chocolate. Um, and then just last year, we released this Corono Be Well Bar, which uh, um, is very much in line with, with your research. So I tried to put all my uh, uh, research into um, antibiotic herbs into this. So it has... Um, all the tasty, uh, lab-proven antiviral herbs that I could find. Um, so it has uh, hibiscus, hibiscus sabdariffa, which you might know as hamica or roselle or red mm-hmm. tea. It has shiso or perilla leaf. Um, it has uh, turmeric. Uh, and it has elderflower Uh, all of which have been found to have some anti-coronavirus activity. I don't think they've been tested specifically against COVID-19 yet. But um, And then uh, a few months ago, I don't know if you saw, they found that some of the um, anthocyanins in chocolate had um, protease inhibitor effects on the COVID-19 virus. So um, it now has five ingredients in there that (laughs) antivirals so we call it that that a tasty way to keep the virus away that's great
0: that's great yeah I'm I'm excited about you know how the science is evolving on on the virus we we're wrapping up a massive study we looked at 2,000 extracts from plants from 650 species yeah so I'm hoping that we'll be able to get that submitted for publication this summer. But there's a there are there are definitely plants that have some potential um for the coronavirus. And also a lot of plants that have anti inflammatory properties and mm-hmm. immune boosting properties. I mean, I think in general it's great to have a plant-forward diet, and if you can have some some chocolate in there, too. <laughs> that's a great way to go. Yeah. Oh. Well, where where can the listeners um, go to find out more about Madre Chocolate? Um, can they order things online if they'd like to taste DNAs?
1: Yeah, yeah. You can uh, just go to madrechocolate.com, and uh, we mail stuff all over the world uh, to people regularly. Uh, we even have a bean-to-bar chocolate-making kit in there, so you can go through. Fun my journey of of learning how to make chocolate in just like a stuff that you probably have around your kitchen like a coffee grinder and a and a food processor and make some um, kind of OG uh, traditional Mexican chocolate bar forms. Um, if you come to Hawaii you can definitely check us out at the farmers markets and come on one of our cacao farm tours so you can taste the fresh fruit and see the entire process so. Um, and we go to a few chocolate festivals, like, uh, there's the Northwest chocolate festival in Seattle in October, and we'll have to see which other ones are restarting yeah. um, this year. Um, but yeah, the, uh, probably the easiest for, for most people is to order off of our website. Uh, awesome. Definitely, if you're on Oahu, stop in and see us. <laughs> That's great. And, and, I, and when, you're, when, you're, uh, when your paper on uh, antiviral herbs is published, I want to get your inside scoop on uh, which of them are really tasty. So if, if we, there's more that we should add to this.
0: Yeah.
1: out a few like Tulsi or Holy Basil because I thought they were a little too strong. Oh man,
0: with- I love tulsi though. It's so like out of the herbs I have in my garden, I I grow, and I know you grow so many different herbs in your garden too. But like, I love tulsi, and I've actually taken to drinking a lot of catnip tea. Oh yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's really nice. Makes really nice tea.
1: Yeah. For um to relax you, or does that? Also- yeah.
0: I mean, I've been a little stressed this year. I don't know about <laughs> others, but, yeah, catnip is is nice. It's, it's a little relaxing tea. But so is Tulsi's, a great adaptogen. There's so many awesome plants to talk about. We could spend hours going sure. other, uh, over others. And, yeah, but um, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge of chocolate with us. It was fascinating to, like, walk through the process and understand more about how it's transformed from this amazing, um, you know, Okra relative in the malvasia family into this amazing stimulant uh
1: food. So thanks, nat It's great to reconnect. Thanks so much for having me, Cassie.
0: Absolutely. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID nineteen isolation period. Um, I want to send a shout out of thanks to our show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth at conspiracy entertainment and i want to remind you if you'd like to see this episode and others recorded this year you can find them on the teach us Botany youtube channel you can also access all the audio on our past seasons at our website at foodiepharmacology.com thanks so much for listening stay healthy out there and i'll see you next time